everyone and welcome to this bonus interview for Rethinking with Alex Torpy. Uh, this interview is with Lee Nave. Uh, Lee and I actually met when he was a student. Um, he was in uh, one of my classes in Seton Hall's Master of Public Administration program. Um, and he also participated in a leadership development program uh, that I created uh, called Pathways for America, um, uh, part of Run for America. Uh, Lee ran for city council in District 9 in Boston in 2019 and got almost 10% of uh, the vote in a seven-way race, where the two winners um, got about 25%. Um, Lee has worked uh, on a number of social justice and local housing and community development issues, and we cover a pretty wide range of topics. We talk a little bit about uh, knocking on doors and what you learn from the process of actually running for office, kind of like digging deeper into policies. We talk a little bit about what it's like being an introvert in running for office, something that uh, he and I share and that uh, many people's perception is that you can't, you can't really be an introvert and, and run for office. Um, we talk a little bit about leadership development programs and a lot about affordable housing issues and how local redevelopment can go poorly or go well depending on what kinds of policies and programs you do, um, and that it is possible to preserve neighborhoods and the history of where people have lived for multiple generations if you do things right. Um, Lee has been um, involved in a number of issues like that since his uh, election in 2019 as well, some of the same issues that he was working on uh, before his race. And so we talk a little bit about that, how to kind of stay involved and actually get more involved and more influential um, which can happen after running for office. And we talk about a number of other local policy areas, constituent services from city council and the, the epidemic of nimbyism um, in local government. Um, and so I really think that you'll enjoy uh, this chat. It's about uh, 45 minutes or 50 minutes long. Uh, Lee is a creative thinker and someone who is really uh, committed to trying to find ways to do the right thing. So um, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and please let me know what you think. Uh, thank you for having me and inviting me. Uh, looking forward to this, today's discussion. Yeah, yeah, same here. So um, so as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, Lee and I first met um, back at Seton Hall. And um, uh, Lee, you've, since then, um, you've been involved, uh, you've worked um, with kind of a, a number of different leadership development programs and ultimately started to get really involved in housing issues um, around where you live in Boston. Talk to us a little bit about sort of your background and what, um, what built up and prompted you to want to get more involved and, and ultimately run for office. All right, yeah. Uh, so right after I left Seton Hall, I got a job at a uh, nonprofit called Citizens for Juvenile Justice. Uh, it's a small nonprofit uh, that worked to create a more fair and just system for young people uh, who potentially might get incarcerated, also prevent more young people from going into the system. And so there was a lot of advocacy work at the state level in Massachusetts, some at the municipal level, uh, trying to reform the current, current practices of juvenile justice uh, and also the foster care system. And so I did a lot of work with uh, a lot of conversations with community leaders, uh, different electeds around the state. And so during these conversations, I worked there for a little bit under five years. Um, during these conversations that I had with folks, um, I noticed something when it came to electeds that I didn't really like, uh, especially at the state level and the city level. <laughs> uh, they they found it very hard to really envision the idea of decreasing young people being impacted by the system. Like it was just very like black and white, like, hey, if you do a crime, you do the time kind of thing. Right. And so you would bring as much research as you can to them. Uh, you can talk about how if you look at diversion programs, which are like different ways, pathways instead of incarceration that a kid could go through. Uh, you could talk to that, uh, talk to them about those programs, how much cheaper they are than actually incarcerating a kid and how that actually stabilizes a kid's life more than ripping them away from their family and putting them in a center at a different part of the state sometimes. Um, and they would still be like, oh, no, this isn't what my constituents would like or, you know, I don't really like this kind of thing. I support the police. Uh, <laughs> and so <laughs> I had this had this 
uh, feeling that this was something that was being impacted by, well, this kind of mindset, uh, the inability to be open and thought or just not just progressive values, but like open and thought of the idea of looking at things from an alternative lens is something that applied to a whole host of different issues. And so I was very compelled to run to run for office uh, around almost living in Boston about four or four or five years at that point. Um, I had done a few programs, uh, different uh, programs like New Leaders Council, I done Pathways with You. Um, and these were like different programs that just really sparked the idea of the, the concept of running for office, like what that would look like. And I did some other trainings around like, there's this mass, this thing called Mass Alliance that trains you how to run for office, like all these different programs I did and built a network. And so I talked to, I, I was minding my own business one day in November, early November, 2018. And a friend reached out who I had met from New Leaders Council. She had worked on, uh, she had worked with Elizabeth Warren and she was like, hey, I have a friend who ran for city council in your neighborhood a couple years ago. He didn't do that well, but he wants to recruit somebody else to run against uh, uh, the current city councilor. And I actually didn't know too much about the guy. Like I'd heard of, heard of his name once or twice. And, um, you know, I looked a little bit more into him once once um, I heard, you know, the, 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 the idea floated in my head of running for office. And I didn't really like his record at all. It was just... He wasn't, in, he wasn't in the community enough. He had been in office for 12 years. He had run on a post several times. Um, he had like $100,000 in his, his uh, campaign war chest of mostly developer money. Um, he, he just didn't seem like this person that really was representing the neighborhood that I lived in, the one that I wanted to really, uh, I guess, lay down roots in um, to the best of his ability. And so, I, I did, you know, I, I reached out to friends who were already, like I had a friend who was a state rep in a different neighborhood. I, you know, I was just like reaching out to electors already just to get a feel, you know, what this would look like. And I decided to uh, run for office. And, and talk to us about that whole campaign experience. So this was in uh, District, uh, District 9, mm -hmm. right? And this was a, uh, a multi-person uh, race. Um, yeah. what was that like? So, so, so you started to, um, uh, uh, you had spoken to some friends, looked into things a little bit more, realized that the values that you believed were important for this neighborhood and in the community were not being represented by the person that was there. How did you kind of move forward at that point? I mean, you know, you, you haven't run for office before at this point, right? So how, how did you kind of you had done some of the trainings, which I imagine were helpful, but what did you do from that point forward? Like walk us through the early stages a little bit of that campaign. What did that feel like? What did it look like? Yeah, so the early stages were a lot of learning still. Like the classes and these one day training or week trainings, they don't really do, it, it's, when you actually do something, it's different. Right. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> like I spent a while creating a list of, uh, people I knew, which is one of the first things folks tell you to do, create a list of everybody that you know, get their contact information, and then ask them for money. Right. <laughs> I created a list, uh, and I started going through and asking people for money. And so I declared um, in mid-December of 2018. And what happens is, uh, you know, the whole, the way finance works is like, oh, through this calendar year, you can ask people for a certain amount of money. Like it was up to a thousand dollars that you can ask somebody for, for one year. And so people were like, yeah, you need to declare now because you want to ask people for the max thousand. I'm like, I don't know too many people will give me a thousand dollars anyway, right. but sure. And so I declared in mid December and I got, I started, you know, going around asking people for money and I got like $4,000 or something like that. And so apparently people were like freaking out about this in like the like different media outlets because nobody had raised that much money against this guy in like 10 years. Hmm. And I, I was confused by it because it seemed like a very small amount compared to his like nearly a hundred thousand K. Right. Um, and so I, I raised money, but then things in life that had already like been planned before I ran for office sort of detoured me a lot in January. Like I went to Disney world for a week and then I went to the middle East for two weeks uh, hmm. for the state state, um, State Department project that I was part of. And so January was like a lost month. Uh, so I came back in jet lag February and started trying to do this campaign thing with friends. And um, 
a lot of that was just like trying to find a campaign manager, find a, find a team, and then try to try to maintain some semblance of fundraising, which fundraising is the, the hardest thing easily about about running for office to me. Uh, because I'm not a very, uh, I don't really, it's not that I don't like asking for help. It's just like, when I've been working in nonprofits for like over a decade. And so usually when, you know, I've asked for money in the past or written grants and all that stuff, um, it's for like this particular mission. But in this case, I'm the, the thing. Right, it's for you. Right. Yeah, it's for me. <laughs> like, of course, you know, I have things that I want to get done if I'm elected, but it's me. I'm asking you for the money for my campaign. Right. <laughs> and so uh, that was hard. That definitely was the hardest thing. And trying to, I had to find a friend who would sit down with me to force me to do it because it was just, it was just in general, it was hard because, you know, you, you get, you get at least like 95%, if not more denials or people asking you like, why would you ask me? Or sometimes you would do cold call lists of people who do research for you. Like I had this, I like hired a consultant who did research for me and she's like, oh, these candidates gave to, you know, I mean, these, these people gave to candidates similar to you in policy or whatnot. Um, you should just call them and ask them for money and tell them what you're doing. And that was like really hard, the cold call list. At least the other people I can, you know, catch up with and be like, hey, I'm running for office, give me $50. That was right. easier. But <laughs> these like people I didn't know, that, that, was, that was pretty hard. Um, and so figuring that out was important. And then also making sure you're engaged as possible with the neighborhood when you're running for office, uh, pre-door knocking. Um, because it's like, you can door knock early on, but you'd have to like know why and where you're door knocking. And so I had to find a field person who could help me pinpoint exactly how I can get my win number, what neighborhoods would be the best from the particular demographic I need to turn out the vote. And then things really shifted in early April, transforming the, 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 uh, campaign because the incumbent decided not to run. And so it became an open race. Right. And at that point, there had also been two other people who had jumped in originally, like one jumped in late January, another one in like mid-February. Um, but then all of a sudden, additional five people jumped, uh, four, four additional people jumped in. So it was a seven people race now hmm. in an open seat. And our district in Boston was known notoriously for being the worst, worst or one of the worst turnouts. So whoever won might win with like 750 votes. Oh. in a district that represents 72,000 people. Oh. And so I had to figure out a way to carve out out of all these folks, out of seven people of a potential 5,000 people voting, how I can get that 750 or 1,000 votes. And so that, that was uh, some of the hardest, you know, that, that, that was definitely some of the hardest uh, components to the, the campaign in. And that's not even getting on the issues in when it comes to like housing and um constituent services which is actually one of the biggest jobs the city council does and you as a former uh mayor for the, you, were you a president or mayor well you know south orange loved the historical terms um, okay. <laughs> so i think they actually actually i think they may have changed it recently from village president to mayor and trustee to council but i'm not, I'm oh, okay. not sure but yeah the executive yeah 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 so it's like it was really a lot of constituent services which i right. heard in advance but i didn't know as much once I, you know, started to really get into the conversations with folks, because I could talk about juvenile justice policy or housing policy to some folks, but that's not what's impacting a lot of people's lives every day. They're more worried about this project across the street. They're, they're more worried about, you know, rats, which is a big thing in our neighborhood. Uh, rats, right. uh, trash, uh, potholes. That's the big one, potholes, uh, signs here and there, like, oh, we should have a speed bump on this street because there's too much speed. There's too much uh, speeding occurring, things like that. Uh, those are some of the huge issues for folks, some voters uh, that I had to really dive into and figure out as best as possible. Hmm. Now, I want to come back to some of the housing stuff in a minute, because mm -hmm. I know that that's an area that we've talked about before. But before we yeah. do that, you know, in terms of running for office, one of the things that, um, you know, I've heard from many people who are debating whether they should be doing it or not, um, or um, just have discounted it as not a great potential way to get involved. Um, one of the groups of people that I often hear that from 
um, is a group that we both belong to, which is the introverts. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so talk, um, let's talk a little bit about uh, that. So especially for any of you out there who are watching or listening to this and um, you know, feel like running for office or being an elected official or anything like that is only for people who kind of get their energy from the extroverted activities. Um, Lee, talk to us a little bit about what it was like. I mean, I, you know, I mean, it feels weird. So we're in January of 2021 recording this, you know, the idea of knocking on doors right now just as like, seems like, oh my God, I can't imagine going to somebody else's house right now um, and knocking on strangers doors. But what was that like? I mean, you mentioned the cold calling before. I mean, what, what was that like for someone who isn't, you know, may not be naturally inclined to want to just be talking to strangers every day? What was that like having to get, you know, kind of scale up, knock on doors, make those cold calls and all that kind of stuff? Uh, it's, it's draining. It's extremely draining to say the right. least. Um, you like, Sometimes I would go to two or three community events in one night and, you know, I'd just meet different audiences. I'd have conversations with people as much as possible. It, it, it's sometimes very hard to really just walk up to someone and spark a conversation. Right. Which is extreme, which, you know, is, is part of what folks expect sometimes from a, a, an elected. Right. Uh, you know, somebody approached me, of course, I'll have a conversation with them, <laughs> but it's a big difference. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so that, that was hard. And of course the cold calls and, you know, phone banking, that was, I hate phone banking. <laughs> yeah, It's tough. It's one of the hardest parts for, I think for yeah. anybody, even running, even people that are kind of more get their energy from those conversations, sitting in a room and calling people is just yeah. not easy. But for some reason, I actually like door knocking a lot. That is actually my favorite part of campaigns. Mm. Even though I'm an introvert, that is my favorite part of campaigns. Um, and it might be, I'm, I'm from the Midwest originally. So I used to, you know, I, I knock on people's doors all the time, asking them for uh, like, um, like, hey, do you want me to cut your grass? Or when I was a boy scout, I would be like selling popcorn or something. Or my right. sister was a girl scout. So I would knock on the door with her and she'd sell cookies, things like that. And so I was, I was used to like having those, those impromptu conversations with people. Well, I wouldn't call it impromptu because I'm going there anyway. Uh, but I, I'm used to having those conversations with strangers, asking them for stuff. Um, at doors, in person, face to face. Those were great conversations. That part was easy to me. But the phone and sort of the, the disconnect of it, um, that was hard. And also the big events, uh, right. the community events were hard. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. The door knocking, I feel like um, a lot of the other conversations that I've had with people who've run for office, many of us, it seems like those, those of us who are really sort of, you know, mentally, intellectually engaged in the topics of the, that, like, of the issues, um, enjoy the door knocking because I imagine that you've got into some really interesting conversations with people. Oh, doors. yeah. Great conversations. Like, amazing conversations. <laughs> like, I, I, I don't know. One, one time I talked to a guy about Little House on the Prairie for half an hour. I don't know how that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, um, that's an interesting one. Now, what did that like? Is there a connection point between that and, you know, what was happening in the district? Or did you guys just kind of go on a tangent? It was sort of a tangent because, well, he, he was telling me the, a little bit of the history of the neighborhood. Okay. Uh, like there, you know, there used to be some industrial parts of the neighborhood. And he talked about, um, just how almost like folks like came in and settled in and we, there was like a little house on a re house on a prairie reference and we started talking about the show and everything mm. in the books and that's sort of that's sort of how it like led it to that area but uh i hope he voted for me by the way <laughs> <laughs> oh maybe um, he's watching this <laughs> yeah <laughs> but uh yeah it was you know sometimes uh you, you talking about the history of the neighborhood and because like i said i'm not from this neighborhood i'd only lived here about three years before I ran for office in this particular neighborhood. Um, and so it was a lot of learning also in that sense. Like I, I spent a lot of my free time reading books, uh, going to the little, there's a small history museum around here on this particular neighborhood. And so I was just read books as I was running for a district seat in all the neighborhood is called Alston and Brighton. Um, and like I learned that this neighborhood used to be part of Cambridge back in the, the 1800s before Boston annexed it hmm. after the Civil War, um, things like that. It's just like 
sort of focus me in a little bit and continue those conversations with other folks, especially one of the biggest things that can uh, be a detriment to you as a person who's not born and raised there is going against candidates who are born and raised here right. because folks feel like, you know, they, they already have their established networks of friends and family, but it's also like, hey, this person knows me. He knows the history of this neighborhood. So I feel like this is the person I can get behind. And so I had a couple of those folks that I was going against once the field opened up to seven people. Um, right. And so I had to really, really learn more about, you know, um, the, the, the past, the history. Hmm. And these are all things that, I mean, you know, I think that, you know, I've talked in, in other discussions on the podcast about um, the value of uh, door knocking, not just as a political tactic, which is <laughs> necessary, but also as a learning experience for, for yourself as the candidate, because you never know. I mean, it's always good to assume that you don't know everything, right? Oh, yeah. And I think that, I know that's how you sort of approach these, is that every, any opportunity can sort of be a learning opportunity. Mm -hmm. um, and with the door knocking, you just never know who's on the other side. And it could be someone with a totally fascinating uh, perspective on something that you would have never come across otherwise. And it's, it's worth when doing the door knocking, like you were saying, like to sort of be open-minded about what you might encounter. Oh yeah, definitely. Like, and then there's sometimes there's action uh, items that occur. Right. <laughs> uh, like, I would call it an item, action events. Like uh, one, one particular woman, she was in her, her late eighties. I, I door knocked her door and I ended up actually going to her backyard to help her lay some rat traps. And we were mm. conversing the whole time about the, the past in the neighborhood. And, you know, she told me a little bit about the neighbors, uh, like neighbors who had been there for like 10 years and had left, had been priced out, uh, forced to sell, things like that. And you, you, you know, you, you just learn a lot. And also you can do direct constituent services at the same time. Right. Uh, <laughs> So, yeah, I hope that became like a campaign photo, you know, where you're saying like, you know, because you mentioned there was a rat problem and it's like, uh, you know, direct action, you know, a picture of you setting the rat traps. Uh, oh, yeah, I actually uh, created a policy about it. <laughs> I created a citywide policy uh, platform for rats in particular. Uh, and I'm, I'm actually going to try to work on that. Not, I'm not, you know, of course, I, I didn't I didn't win, but I'm still like working with some of uh, some of the elected city councilors to implement that. Um, because due to COVID, we've seen an increase of uh, rats in general around the neighborhood. Hmm. Um, and so I'm, I'm working on something like that. But yeah, yeah, yeah. definitely. I, I tried to amplify it as much as I could during the. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's, a, that's an interesting one. Um, now, the, the, the sort of um, energy that it, that it sort of takes to go do all of that, was there anything in particular? Um, like, I know this is something I really, I really struggled with when I was running, was sort of like, balancing that out you know when you come back at the end was there anything that you found um that was kind of helpful in in allowing you to recharge or keep your balance i what helped me recharge actually was sitcoms when i wasn't working uh like old old like i went they're not old old but like 80 90 sitcoms like i watched every single episode of cheers while i was running <laughs> as well as frazier um and they, they, they allowed my mind to just like fade away right, <laughs> as much right. as possible. Uh, like that, that's what kept me sane during the entire year. Um, just really just decompressing after the day was done or before I went out in, into the field. And also I was working full time for about half the campaign. Okay. Then I went part time and then I went like the last two months uh, around GOTV. I went, um, I was able to take a sabbatical from work. So that helped a little bit as well. Hmm. That's great. Um, the only the only thing <laughs> the only thing I didn't like about that was talking about the '90s is a long time ago, which is just too much. I can't uh, handle that kind of a time scale. <laughs> I know. Yeah, we're around the like, same. Wasn't age, that long ago? Right? Yeah, yeah. yeah, I think so. Yeah. <laughs> oh man. I mean, it's like yeah, yeah. I, I do that sometimes. I watch you know Seinfeld or something, uh -huh. and then realize that this was filmed you know 25 or 30 years ago, and yeah. it's like, oh boy, okay. Yeah, I, I recently realized I was born in 89 and I realized that I've been in uh, five different decades already in some part of my life. Hey, that's pretty good. <laughs> <laughs> that's pretty good. Um, interesting. Um, all right. So now I know when you were in Boston, um, when you were living there and also running, housing was a really big issue. And I want to make sure to talk about that a little bit, too, because, you know, like we were talking about before, you know, a lot of people don't kind of realize how 
uh, how many issues local governments work on and mm -hmm. also don't realize how important housing is as a policy. Yeah. Um, so, so reflect a little bit on that. Like, what was your, you know, what was your kind of take on that? And what did you, how did you see bad housing policy? What was the impact in your neighborhood in the community? The impact in my particular neighborhood of Boston was there was a lot of development that wasn't being made to actually allow um, middle-class folks, uh, folks who couldn't afford uh, to spend a third or half their salary, well, not even a third, a half of the salary or more on housing. Right. Um, and so this is a lot of the creation of the new units and the price of the older units in a lot of cases uh, were substantially increasing as well. Um, like my particular neighbor, one of like Alston and Brighton, Alston in particular has Boston University in it. And so a lot of BU as well as Boston College kids because Boston College touches on this district as well. A lot of these, a lot of the folks who live off campus live in this neighborhood. And so student housing is something that a lot of folks who had lived here for a long time was blaming on the, or, or blaming the increase in the, the price of, of rents around the neighborhood uh, because the universities were expanding their populations, but they weren't actually building more housing for their students. And so they were going to the neighborhoods that were closest to their schools. Uh, and so landlords would rent out each one of their rooms for about 800 to a thousand dollars. And they would have a four bedroom, so this would be thirty six hundred, four thousand dollars. And then they didn't really do much upkeep for these units, so a lot of folks were paying this you know, pretty pretty intense price for uh, mediocre to bad uh, housing. Right. I got to imagine this is connected to the rat <laughs> issues too. Yeah, <laughs> and that was also you know because of the the lack of upkeep right. uh, that was increasing the rat population in the neighborhood, um, and so with student housing not being addressed by the universities as well as the housing that's being built by the developers being mostly luxury condos mostly luxury apartments there wasn't much middle ground for folks to look at the idea of you know investing as a family into this neighborhood and there's also a lot of investors just buying up any house that immediately came onto the market and so what the Alston Brighton's Community Development Corporation did was they tried to reach out to folks who were thinking about putting their house on the market and say, hey, would you want to make sure that your house is sold to a person and not an investor? And so right. <laughs> they were trying to put a stipulation. I'm trying to, I'm trying to remember the top of my head, uh, occupant, uh, um, single, not single occupancy, but it's like a stipulation where it only goes, you know, you, you sell it to a person and not a, not a corporation. Right. Um, the reason why this was important is because in the 90s and 80s and also the mid 2000s, Harvard University, which is also in this neighborhood, uh, they were actually using like fake shell companies to buy up a ton of um, different properties uh, around the neighborhood. And people didn't notice this until many years later <laughs> that it was Harvard doing this. And so Harvard ended up buying like almost 25% of Alston in particular. Hmm. Uh, and so I had mentioned this before, before we got on the interview that Harvard University, even though it's in, like people think of it as in Cambridge, most of it's in my neighborhood, like all their business buildings. Uh, and they also, of course, own houses that they rent out. Um, and different, a lot of businesses that they rent rent out the space to the folks. Uh, and so housing, trying to address the housing shortage when it came to the lack of affordable housing, um, too much college housing uh, because of students having to be there because the campuses weren't providing housing, as well as the encroachment done by Harvard University were like the three biggest housing issues that I actually didn't know too much about before I ran for office. Um, like I knew, of course, there was affordable housing issue, but I didn't know about these particular issues as much as I right. should have before running for office. And so housing is like the biggest thing in, in this neighborhood and most of Boston, to be honest, when it comes to what a city council has to really work on. And housing is connected to basically um, everything else. Yeah. Right. I mean, if if and, and from the perspective of some of the 
policies that have specifically hurt uh, communities of color over decades in the 1900s, a lot of them were housing policies that were very discriminatory. And we were talking a little bit about like South Orange and Maplewood, which are interesting examples where, um, you know, in the history, the, the towns are considered sort of, um, you know, like really interesting, diverse places now, but they weren't always that way. And it took the effort of a lot of people and specific organizations like the Community Coalition on Race and others in the two towns to actually reverse the trend of, you know, real estate agents only taking white families to one area and black families to another area and, and, and basically getting buy-in from the local governments and the communities at large that that's not the best thing for any of us. Um, and that the best thing for the success of the community is an integrated, is a diverse but integrated community. Um, and that's something that has, I would argue, is promoted, um, you know, a meteoric rise in home values in the area and oh, yeah. an enormous amount of culture and arts and just all sorts of things that come from having different people from different backgrounds sharing the same space together. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, and we definitely, there's definitely been some positives uh, when it comes to, um, there's been more people from, different parts of the country have definitely come to this neighborhood and the city in general over the last like 10, 15 years. Uh, and if, you know, uh, I recently became a homeowner here in my neighborhood. Uh, I looked at the past of like, not only my unit, but the ones in the condo association, like just in 10 years alone, there's, they've tripled in value. Wow. Um, <laughs> which is mad, like madness, to be honest. Um, <laughs> like they're, is a huge um, housing boom for sure, um, but it's just is leaving a lot of people behind, right? Um, especially in the new projects because none there, there's also because of the last four years also there's been a decrease in federal funding going to HUD properties, and so what we've seen also is like the um, housing that's already been built the the house like our housing authority our our uh, federal funded housing, as well as the municipal funded affordable housing projects, they are be becoming dilapidated to say the least. Right. Uh, and so there's been some alternative, uh, there's been ways to like find funding uh, for upkeep of those units, as well as to build additional units, but it's, it's very rare and hard to do. Uh, it's usually like you have to replace old units and then build over the old units with new units that are already been affordable. Like there's a there's a project in Brighton right now. It was 61 units. They've become for the most part dilapidated, but a nonprofit organization has found a, through like five or six different resources found enough money to build not only those 61 units again, but 100 additional units for senior populations for affordable housing. And these folks are at the very low income of affordable housing, like the 30% area medium income level, like the deeply affordable units. And so th that's an example of something that's good to happen. But then on the flip side, 50 of these additional 100 units that they're building have to, 50 of those people are coming from a, a, another building down the street that has something called expiring use, uh, which is essentially a building that was all affordable for about 30 or 40 years, but the city contracted it for to be affordable during that time period, but now it could be sold at market market value. Hmm. And of course, with like I mentioned earlier, like, hey, people's homes have tripled in value in 10 years. If you have a building that has like 100 units in it, even if they were affordable for 30, 40 years, now you can sell them all at market rate, you're definitely wow. going to sell them. Yeah, so, right. Uh, trying to find ways to also keep these uh, buildings that have been deemed affordable only for a certain amount of time period under the, 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 the portfolio of affordable housing is another huge issue that we're trying to address. Right, because then at that point, it's like almost like a whack-a-mole or something. You've got affordable yep. housing coming off and you're racing to add more at, you know, at a higher rate. But so you, then it puts a lot of pressure on redevelopment of new properties where you already have it met in existing properties. And land cost is like bad here. Right, right. And there's not much actual land here. So to really build new new projects on and the land that is built 
you know, found or whatnot, it usually goes to the top bidders. So, you know, CDCs have an issue, like the CDC in our neighborhood has a lot of issues in developing new projects because they can't compete. <laughs> and when, the CDC uh, is not the CDC that we're familiar with. This is a no. different, this is a local government. Yeah, yeah, community development corporation, yeah. <laughs> And, and these are all, there's a lot of different ways that at the local level, I mean, we were talking a little before too about, you know, I mean, New Jersey, you know, being particularly bad at affordable housing from a state level and how it does it. Then there's some things that happen at the state level, but there's a lot that happens at the local level. And there's a lot of um, difficulty sometimes in accomplishing these projects. We were both, you know, kind of lamenting the amount of nimbiness um, oh, yeah. Which, for those of you who are watching this and don't know it, uh, this is the not in my backyard, um, you know, where you'd have people line up at meetings and say things like, I'm a strong proponent of affordable housing. I think this is extremely important, but I live around the corner from this proposed project, and I don't think this is the right neighborhood to do it in. And they'll yeah. justify it with X, Y, or Z reason. Mm -hmm. Uh, but often those are not the real reasons. No. Um, and the real reasons might be a bad racial bias. They might be a misunderstanding of what affordable housing is um, and how it impacts a community and all these different things um, that make it um, difficult to do. But also for those people who want to see these things changed, I mean, those are people you'd like to think that at least some of them, it's a, it's a, they're making an unintentional mistake in their position on the issue, right? They yeah. actually do believe in the value of affordable housing and they really don't understand, you know, the pros and cons of what's happening. And that's an opportunity at the local level in local government or outside of it to try and engage with those neighborhoods and individuals and try to get them to see the value of doing these kinds of projects. Oh yeah. You're, you're, you're completely right. Um, and actually I have a pretty good example of that. Um, like early last year, there was this project. Well, not early last year. Oh, I keep forgetting. 2019, <laughs> early 2019. Um, there's this project by the name of uh, Alston Yards. And it's right by where in, in my neighborhood, we have both the uh, next door to each other are the Celtics and the Bruins uh, practice arenas. And in that they're, they're like huge, you know, huge stadiums, pretty high. And there's already like these massive uh, luxury apartments that a lot of the players actually just stay in during the summer or some during the year. And so there, this Austin Yards project is supposed to be four buildings at about the same height. Some were proposed to be a little higher um, right next to them. And it's also right by our, um, our highway system. And so there's not really many abutters in that area, but the community came in hard pushback because of density. Density is like the big no-no for mm -hmm. if somebody, you know, might be a NIMBY. Uh, right. Density is like the biggest thing, like, oh, the shadow effect. Sh people hate shadows. Uh, and so um, there are folks who are like yelling, yeah, we need more affordable housing. But then they would yell, oh, we need a higher rate of affordable housing. But they would also ask for the developer to decrease the amount of floors in the project, which in total would decrease the number of affordable units. Um, like there was one of the buildings was proposed to be 20, 20 stories or something like that. Um, and they were gonna put 25% affordability in it, but then folks are like, oh, we only wanted it at 16. So they put it at 16, but they decreased affordability down to around 20% of it, which decreased the number of actual affordable units substantially. Right. Um, and so we, we, we've seen, you know, the community come in and say, hey, we want this affordable housing, uh, but they don't really want it in some cases to interfere in their lives in any kind of capacity. All right. <laughs> and even in that project I mentioned where the, uh, the, the, senior, uh, the senior units, um, the the, the project that I mentioned is going to be 160 units of senior housing, all deeply affordable. There's pushback uh, from community members because this, this new building would be one story higher than the original building. Uh, and they, they believe that this one additional story would cause such a shadow effect that it would kill plants in the surrounding neighborhood. Like all hmm. the plants would just die because of this one story. 
<laughs> uh, and they were like, you, you should take down a, the whole story of that. And people were like, well, that's like 20 units of housing gone when we need to replace this affordable housing for these seniors right. who really have nowhere else to go. And so that, that's, um, that is, it's a constant problem. <laughs> It is, but 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 an opportunity too, um, because you're you're you know when you're working on those things, you're at that kind of ground level with people, um, and we need to be pushing back on people with those sorts of um, you know the that don't really um, they don't really see how all the dots are connected, yeah. um, and um, you know and it, sometimes it is tough to see, uh, but you know that's part of the value of even um, running for office. I mean, you mentioned that you didn't win in your election, although I think it's worth mentioning that you got almost 10% of the vote where the top two vote getters only in the seven person race only got around in the in the lower mid 20s percent. Yeah. Um, and so you had made, you had covered some considerable ground in getting support um, for your campaign, I think. And um, I would, and got to put a lot of these issues out there in a way that hopefully moved the conversation forward a little bit. Yeah. Um, when you, when you kind of look back on that experience, which, you know, the, you know, the 2019 seeming like forever ago, um, was there anything out of that experience that you felt like, um, you know, that sort of, uh, a lesson learned on, you know, from your standpoint, uh, did it change the way that you see yourself engaging in these issues, like going forward at all? Yeah. Um, one of the biggest lessons that I got from it was, have with, with the race being so small like we had about a 12 or 13 percent turnout in a district with about seventy-five thousand people wow. and so it was about five thousand people who voted and i i got about 500 votes um and so one of the things i definitely learned was having a base before you even run is like the most <laughs> essential part right because then you can expand more and because, you know, I, like I said, I only lived there about three years. So, I, you know, I, I had friends in the neighborhood, but I didn't have an established base like the two people who got one and two. Like one person had lived there over 20 years and been a community organizer the whole time. The other person had lived there their whole life and had worked for a, a local state rep. And so they had contacts and, of course, knew everybody. Right. Um, these folks only got, each one of them only got 500 votes more than me. Hmm but they had bases already. And so I saw that in my head as like, I had to build mine completely from the ground up right. while they already had this sort of leg up in this sense. Um, and so having a base now, I, like if I ran again, I, I have a base now. I, you know, I have people I know I could call on and support. Uh, so that, that's, that's the biggest one, especially in a small, such a small election. Also ranked choice voting would have been great. Because yes. after the election, uh, you know, everybody comes up to me like, oh, you were my second choice, but this was my friend. You know, it's all very community. Like, you know, this is such a small voting population. You know everybody for the most part after a while. Even though this place, this particular neighborhood almost tries to act like it's a suburb, even though it's a part of the city of Boston. Mm -hmm. But um, everybody's like, oh, yeah, you're my second choice. I, you know, if, if this person wasn't running, I would have voted for you, all that kind of stuff. And so... Hearing this, hearing, you know, hey, I'm everybody's second choice. I'm like, if I was, if it was ranked choice voting and they put me as their two, maybe I would have done better. <laughs> right, right. Uh, I mean, it's a really important uh, note because it's one of the assumptions that a lot of people make without realizing that we make it, that just picking this person or that person is the way that we vote. Yeah. Um, and we know that decision-making systems can work in different ways. And we know that there's pros and cons to each of the different methodologies that we use to do something and rank choice where you eliminate the, you rank people instead of picking them and you eliminate the last place vote getter. If nobody gets above 50, I mean, there would have been a couple people who's, who would have been eliminated and their votes would have gotten distributed. Um, and it would be really interesting to see how those uh, change the results. I know uh, Maine and Alaska um, have re recently done it. I'm pretty sure in New York city, um, mm -hmm. they approved it for the municipal elections. You think that's coming to Boston anytime soon? So we, we actually just voted on it in um, uh, the, the, the recent election November and it didn't pass, which was very shocking. Hmm. Uh, I, I, I have 
have to talk with some folks to figure out what exactly went down because the campaign against it wasn't even that vocal. Hmm. Like the campaign for it raised like $8 million. They've been pushing for it for like five or six years constantly. And it, it lost pretty bad. It was like 60% no. Um, and I think what it, it might've just been a communication issue, just like really explaining to people what it looks like. Right, right. Uh, how it functions. It's a little because, technical for, for someone who's not really aware of it to know what it really yeah. is. Yeah. Yeah, because like I said, the no one, the no one campaign was nothing. It, there was like somebody started a campaign account and they raised like a thousand dollars. Like it, it, it was nothing. So it wasn't because they faced such strong opposition. It was a you know technicality, communication, and Governor Baker also did come out and say he was against it. But it was like he said it one time in a press conference. Right. It wasn't like he ran a whole campaign around the state against it. So it's hard to get the current institutional stakeholders to 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 want to see this. I don't I don't think as much um, as I would love to see what it would do for elections in New Jersey. I don't imagine it's happening anytime soon because. What it, what it does is it is, it, well, I mean, in addition to potentially lowering the cost of elections, because you don't have to pay for doing runoff elections, yeah. it just all happens automatically. Um, but, it, you know, the real benefit of it is making elections more competitive, especially mm -hmm. for outside non-two-party candidates. And I can think of, uh, well, two different people in any election who are not going to want that. Um, yeah. <laughs> but uh, that's, uh, yeah, that's interesting. Um and so um, is there is there anything else? I mean, for for people that are like checking this out and thinking about different ways to get involved. I mean, is there anything that we didn't really cover? I mean, I know we could probably talk about this stuff for hours, but like, is there anything that you that, that you want to any advice or ideas or lessons for people that, you know, might be mulling this over in their own minds? Yeah, I think um, really have an understanding of the community needs is, is, is fundamental before you before you go go about doing it. Like you can't do like a cookie cutter, like, oh, I'm just going to do education, affordable housing. You know, you have to really sit down in these community meetings that, that occur almost every day in some communities and really understand like what folks are feeling. But then you also have to expand beyond those particular meetings and have conversations with your neighbors. Uh, because sometimes some, you know, some community meetings are just 100 opinions when, like I said, there's 75,000 people here. And so you have to really like go out beyond that and just have conversations with folks to really understand what's going on. Um, and if you're doing a district, like if you're doing like a district or a state rep, like, you know, like a small, small section of a larger, uh, a larger state or anything like that is really, really like localized compared to like an at-large counselor or a statewide position that you're running for. So you have to really understand like, the history behind it definitely are just in general what's who who are the key key people to really have conversations with to understand things that's a, it's a lot of background a lot of research yeah um to do this the right way yeah definitely <laughs> um, but it's a lot of fun it's a rewarding experience um like i'm not trying to say that it's a cliche or anything like that like i had a lot of fun doing it when i when i lost i didn't i i you know i was disappointed but i i you know i felt good about doing it i i didn't regret it like the next day i went to ihop i didn't you know start a coup because i lost like i you know <laughs> I, I went to ihop and i started organizing to help other people win their elections so it's a uh, because it was a runoff there was still like a whole nother six weeks before the uh general right so, like it, it it was a fun experience uh and definitely changed my life and opened up a lot of opportunities and, and, you know, and it's sort of, you know, I think speaks to your genuine interest in the issues in the community, because, um, you know, for people who, uh, you know, whether you win or lose an election, if you're really trying to make progress on those issues, it's almost not going to, you know, the way that you do it might look different based on whether you're in the position or not, or, or not in the position, but still working on the issues and, and like, not just saying, oh, well, you know, that didn't happen, you know, that's it, you know, done. <laughs> Um, because making these kinds of changes is really, I mean, as you, I mean, this is really difficult. Um, you know, it takes a really long time and, you know, we're pushing back on, uh, you know, decades, centuries, millennia of doing things in very specific ways that are, you know, often not advantageous to most of us. Um, so it's, it's a long haul, um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Um, yes. 
Yes, yeah, and also in my particular neighborhood, it always had been run by an Irish or Italian man. Right. Uh, <laughs> and that, you know, when you look at Boston, it's usually who who's in charge of the city anyway. But this particular neighborhood, it was like it's not as uh, diverse as uh, other parts of town. So that was also a big issue that I, I dealt with. Like, hey, this this black guy who's an outsider to our neighborhood already. Like, how how do we you know how do I sort of like convince people that I'm the right person for the job? Right. Right. Yeah, I mean that's that's uh, that's definitely um, climbing a hill. But I, but again, I mean, you know, from starting from scratch, like you made a you made a lot of um, you made a pretty big dent in things, um, yeah. you know, with that. And I imagine that all those people that you met um, are going to be like helpful contacts as you continue navigating, working on all this stuff. And that yep. whether it's you or one of them, or so, like there'll be ways for that group to work together on all sorts of things. I imagine. Oh yeah, yeah. We've like since then been doing a lot of different projects, a lot of different things. Working, you know, it, it, it's been it's been good. It's a lot of connecting. It's, there's something always going on for sure. Right, right. Well, there's <laughs> a lot to do. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. Um, uh, well, um, on that note, um, I think I want to um, uh, let you get back to your uh, Wednesday here, um, right. but. But, but really, thank you for, um, for joining and sharing some of your uh, thoughts and experiences here for people that um, might be thinking about this. It's pretty cool to hear. And it's fun, you know, for me to get to see too, because I mean, we've known each other for some number of years now. And it's, yeah, like you know, eight I, years, I, seven yeah, years. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, it's just so cool. Everybody's like, we're all finding different ways to plug mm -hmm. in and finding different ways to push in the areas that we, um, that we want to and i imagine that that's you know we're just gonna think we're all you know we're in this for the long haul too and so mm -hmm. um it'll it'll be fun to see what kind of things you work on next um and what kind of hopefully figure out some ways to help boston create some more equitable housing policies which we can sure use here in new jersey also <laughs> so uh, that's the goal that Whatever is model we make get it to new jersey <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah that's right <laughs> uh, well, thank, thanks, thanks again, Lee, um, uh, for joining um, here, and uh, and you know, best of luck in everything that you're working on. I appreciate it. Thank you so much, and uh, I hope you continue to to do this podcast and um, reach at, reach to many, as many people as possible so they can hear 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 about this topic and what else you want to discuss. I hope so. 